Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. It's Lon Seidman. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up, and we've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about today, including Comcast launching a new streaming service and hardware. Google Stadia may not be a flop. We'll talk about my opinions with that in a second. Is VR making a comeback? SpaceX has a Falcon Heavy on the horizon, and we may go cover it. Is Pi VPN secure? Dangers of not using a VPN and why schools choose Google over Microsoft. Lots to talk about now, so let's get to it. Now, before we begin, I want to thank our newest supporter here on the channel, Michael Isaacs, gave via our Patreon page. I want to thank Michael for his support of the channel and everyone who's been supporting the channel on an ongoing basis, along with everyone who watches on a regular basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. So let's take a look now at the Weekend Review. On the Extras channel, we unboxed a fanless mini PC from Codlix. It cost $229, but they maxed out the RAM, so it's got 8 gigabytes out of the box for that price. Uh, we also unboxed the Lenovo C630 Chromebook that we reviewed on the main channel this week. Also on the main channel, we looked at a portable display from WinAxit. Uh, this is a USB-C display, so in many cases, but not all, uh, you can drive the display with a single USB-C cable. Uh, it also has power delivery, though, so on our Surface Go, it couldn't power the display. But when we plugged in a USB-C power source, it was able to power the display and charge the uh, Surface Go back through its power connector. So that was pretty cool. It also works with the Nintendo Switch if you use the Nintendo Power Adapter. And it's a touch display, too. Lots of compatibility on that one. A little pricey, though, at $289. And then we also did a replay of my Mr. experiences. We did a little bit more with the Mr., which is an FPGA-based computer. Uh, we looked at arcade cores looked at some of the scalers for the HDMI, and we also looked at automatically updating the system itself and all of its cores. This is a great open source hardware and software project that is making a lot of progress. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye, and it looks like Comcast is beginning to focus on cord cutters that are using their internet services to cut the cord. Uh, They've got a new service called Flex, Uh, that's launching this week. It costs five bucks a month on top of what you're already paying Comcast, and it also requires their XFi gateway, which of course costs a little bit in of itself. Uh, But what they're doing with this is basically creating a centralized place for a lot of your streaming networks, and you can then subscribe to HBO and a few other networks on top of this Flex service. Uh, And they'll also be doing 4K through this service too, which is something they're not offering on their cable systems at the moment. Uh, They're going to give you 10,000 free ad-supported film and TV titles. I'm guessing this is the same uh, group of titles that we see on some of the free services from Roku and others. And you'll get ESPN3 and Pluto TV and a bunch of stuff you can already get for free elsewhere. Uh, What they're saying is that they think customers want a single location for all this stuff, and they're hoping Flex becomes uh, the thing that people boot up when they turn on their internet-connected televisions. So we'll have to see how this plays out. 
Uh, but it's not cheap because you do have to pay the five bucks plus the fee that you're paying to rent the X5 modem. So it's not going to be of interest for people like me that have no Comcast equipment in my house whatsoever. And the Game Developers Conference was last week, and Google announced their new Stadia gaming platform. Some thought they may be introducing a new piece of hardware for consumers to buy to play these games, but no. Uh, What Google is doing is building out a streaming platform, and if you've got a device with a screen, that's all you need to gain access to it. Uh, They are, though, introducing something to deal with some of the lag and latency that comes across on these platforms, uh, namely a game controller here that will connect directly to the internet and attach itself to the Google Stadia server. So when you hit a button on the controller, rather than going through your computer or tablet via Bluetooth and then out over the internet, the controller itself will be on your Wi-Fi communicating with the server. So your uh, device that you're using as a client will just be getting all the streaming information from Google and nothing else. And as we've seen in the past, a lot of devices introduce a ton of Bluetooth latency uh, when you're playing games with a streaming service. So this, I think, may uh, really lend itself to an improvement in game streaming quality, although it won't be as good as a console or computer directly connected to your display. But I think for most consumers, it may be good enough. And I thought that was a very intriguing way to look at this. Now, a lot of folks in the gaming community have been very critical of this, thinking, oh, it's never going to work. Uh, But I think there's actually a very good chance this might take off a bit. Uh, John Carmack agrees. He says that, I've been saying for a long time that game streaming has a significant future, not necessarily for everything, but the consumer advantages are large and we can fight the problems as developers. That's a huge endorsement from somebody who's really leading the pack on PC game development. Carmack continues to say that many people play games on TVs with so much processing lag that the pixels might as well have been coming from a data center. Not everyone knows or bothers to enable game modes, sadly. And to some degree, what he's kind of insinuating here is that with that controller directly connected to the internet, you may actually see less lag streaming than you do locally. And I think that's a very big problem given that we've seen displays vary greatly in their own latency due to HDMI processing. So here are some things that I thought to be rather interesting about Stadia. Uh, The first is that it has a save state feature. And this might be really cool for game streamers because you could have people actually pick up the game where you are with all the same items in the game that you recovered and all the other things that you might be playing within that game and allow people to play through it just like you're playing through it. And I think that might really engage the community a bit, especially for casual players like me who don't have a lot of time to play through an 80-hour game. I could pick up somebody's save state and enjoy some of the moments of the game without having to invest as much time. Uh, There's also going to be some in-house development on this platform. So it looks like Google is making some investment uh, into providing some exclusive software for it. And unlike other platforms where if you don't own the hardware, you can't play the game, here that's kind of irrelevant. You could maybe you know, subscribe for a month or two and play with it. I don't know if they're going to do any kind of uh, fixed fee games on this, but you have that option available. And I think there is far less of a uh, barrier for people jumping in on exclusives here, given the fact that there is no hardware investment up front. And a big piece of this Stadia thing is that it really plays on Google's strengths. They know how to build server farms. 
They know how to scale up those servers to meet the demand that those of us on the internet uh, require of them. So, for example, YouTube is a Google product that uh, delivers a massive amount of data every day, and they're able to accomplish that. Uh, extremely well, and this is really a very similar exercise on the hardware side for them. They don't have to sell you a game console. They don't have to market that console. They don't have to go to the FCC and get everything approved, and then take the huge risk of bringing out this hardware only to see it flop. They've been through that with Android TV to some degree. They've seen how others have tried to introduce new consoles and have failed. Uh, this really speaks to Google's strengths. They are good at servers and they're good at software, and this is both of those things applied to gaming. And they're not going to have to invest anything in hardware design as a result, and that is going to keep them very much focused on the experience for gamers, which I think is what this is going to be about. Additionally, I think there's going to be a side benefit because if you、uh, want to live in the Linux ecosystem, your gaming options have been relatively limited. There are a number of games that are slowly making their way to Linux, but they haven't been performing all that well, and a lot of the big AAA titles just haven't been there.、Uh, this might actually prompt some developers to beef up their Linux game, especially if Stadia gets a lot of attention here.、Uh, developers in developing for Stadia. Uh, will likely be making those games run on a Linux platform, and that means that you'll be able to buy these games on Linux as well. If you don't want to be a streamer and wish to run things on your own hardware, I really think the streaming era is going to be very good for the PC gamers out there because this is again is all commodity hardware, and whether you run it locally or stream it, I'm sure developers will want to get that game available to you the way you want to play it, and it doesn't cost them anything really to go from. Stadia back to a direct PC sale in that they're developing for a common、uh, open source platform here. So this is good news for gamers all around, and I do think it is going to have a little more legs than people think.、Uh, and I, again, I think it will actually strengthen the PC gaming market in the process, but it might weaken、uh, the traditional gaming console. So I think Sony may have some trouble with this. Microsoft is exploring some of this streaming now, and I think they may accelerate those efforts, seeing where. Uh, things are playing out, and for Microsoft, they benefit from streaming because they sell Windows software that runs on PCs. And again, I think this will、uh, strengthen the PC side of the gaming market. Nintendo's in a good position just because they have something portable that's really fun to play with. So I don't think the Switch is going to get hit all that hard with this. And you could probably see、uh, there being a client for the Switch to play Stadia games, and I'm sure Microsoft games down the road too. So this is good news for everybody, I think.、Uh, one thing. Though is your、uh, data cap if you have one on your internet provider.、Uh, when we were looking at the Google or the Nvidia GeForce Now service a few months ago on the、uh, Android TV, we were talking about how quickly you could max out your one terabyte data cap from Comcast, for example. This surely will do that unless they work out、uh, some deal on that. And Variety's article here says Google Stadia is going to be a net neutrality nightmare. Uh, because if you're streaming 4K 60 frames per second games, I can imagine that will be eating up your data plan very, very quickly. So it's a shame that Google has not been accelerating their fiber deployment,、uh, and this might lead to some additional net neutrality discussions down the road. Now, of course, Google doesn't always have the best track record when it comes to its new and exciting services. They often kill things off after they've tried them for a little while. Google Plus is a great example of that. And if you're curious as to all the different things that Google has killed off over the years, visit the Google Cemetery where you can mourn、uh, Google Allo and Google Plus and 
Google Wave, remember that? All sorts of stuff is dead and buried in the Google Cemetery, but it is remembered forever. And there's probably a good chance that Stadia may end up there as well. But we'll have to see what happens when they launch the service a little bit later this year. Now, another piece of news out of GDC that intrigued me was virtual reality. It looks like there's a renewed effort to get consumers on board with this technology. I have an HTC Vive that I bought when it came out, probably about three years ago now. And I love it. I think it is fantastic, but I don't use it all that much because it's very inconvenient to get set up. I have a thing set up across the room with the light posts. I got to plug everything in and get the software all configured. And it's not something I can just turn on and play whenever I want. Although the experience is just amazing when I do get it up and running. Uh, Oculus has two new headsets that they uh, announced release times for. The first is the Oculus Quest. Now, we've heard about this before. It's a self-contained VR system that is a step above their Oculus Go. So the Oculus Go costs about $200. It has basic head tracking, but not a six-degree head tracking where you could uh, look around your environment and you know, look closer at things and have a more natural way to explore a virtual world. Uh, the Oculus Quest here will do that. Uh, it does offer six degrees. It's a more powerful self-contained VR system. It might be just enough to get consumers excited, I think. We'll have to see what happens when it's released. It's going to cost $400, but the headset will be all that you need. And then at GDC, they uh, released info on their new Oculus Rift S. And this is an upgrade to the original Rift that uh, they came out with a couple of years ago. Uh, This one will do its six degrees of tracking with cameras built into the headset, unlike the Rift that required some external hardware. Uh, I also have to deal with external hardware on my HTC Vive. So what's nice about the Rift S is that you can plug it into your computer and then you don't need any other hardware to get it working. It's going to be a much faster uh, boot up process and that might be appealing to people that were getting a bit annoyed with their original headset. The resolution on this new one is not any better. In fact, it has the same screen on board as the Go, uh, but of course you'll get better imagery out of the fact that you have a more powerful computer driving it. But there's really a lot of disappointment amongst Oculus fans about this headset. They were expecting something to have uh, more resolution. They were expecting a better quality display. Uh, This one is kind of, in many people's eyes, an upgraded Windows mixed reality headset that Lenovo had come up with a few years ago. And actually, Lenovo is manufacturing this for Oculus. So that additionally uh, added some criticism to the mix here. So we'll have to see exactly what it's going to look like when it comes out. I'm actually eager to try this just from a convenience standpoint. So I'll probably get both of these and review them. Oddly, they both cost the same, even though the Quest can drive itself and the Rift S requires a PC to work. So the pricing's a bit confusing there. And Palmer Lucky, who is the ousted founder of Oculus, uh, is also a bit critical on the Rift S because he doesn't think the new Rift S is going to work with his eyes. Because one of the things that uh, the original Oculus headset had on board was a manual IPD adjustment which would actually adjust the lenses to match the distance of your pupils from each other. Uh, That was something he spent a lot of time getting right on the original Oculus because they wanted to uh, cover, I think, about 90% of the population with their product. And he feels as though uh, this is going to uh, make it work for most people, but not everyone. And apparently uh, Palmer has some pupil distances that are not average. And therefore he doesn't think this headset's going to work for him at all. He's actually got a very nice analysis of this 
up on his blog that you can check out. Uh, Palmer, since leaving, uh, Oculus has been doing work for the Defense Department using virtual reality, and he's a very uh, dedicated Oculus developer as a result of this, and he's having some frustration there. So check out his article. It's rather interesting. But that's not all that people were talking about from GDC. It looks like uh, HTC has their own upgraded version of the Vive that will also incorporate camera-based head tracking, so you won't need the light posts anymore with their updated product. Hopefully we'll be seeing that one coming out in the near future. And then everyone was buzzing about something HP put together. Uh, They've got a Windows Mixed Reality headset, but it's driving a 4K display. So you're getting 2160 in both eyes, uh, which is among the uh, highest resolution out there of existing VR headsets. And this is coming from a major manufacturer So I'll have to see what uh, this one looks like when it gets released. It'll cost a little bit more as a result of that higher resolution. You'll need a more powerful computer, probably a 1080 GTX NVIDIA card to start with. So I think there's going to be some uh, barrier to entry on the hardware side. But it's really good to see all of this renewed interest in VR because it really is good. And it just hasn't been easy for consumers to really start playing with, but it looks like there's going to be a renewed effort to finally make it work. And it's funny that all of this renewed interest in VR coincided with my reading of uh, Blake Harris's new book called The History of the Future, which I just finished, and it's about the development of Oculus. You'll learn a lot more about Palmer Luckey. I was really impressed by how smart he appears to be insofar as the hardware development was concerned and uh, how really his effort renewed VR from where it had been left off back in the 90s to something that uh, is really remarkable. And John Carmack played a big role in uh, that story as well. This is a great read, and I'm not going to give anything away because it's a really good story, and it's a true story uh, that's been very well researched and written by Blake Harris, we've had on the channel here before. If you're interested in the book, we are giving away a copy to a lucky winner in a few minutes. So if you didn't win, uh, you can find it at the affiliate links here on screen. Uh, If you liked his book, Console Wars, I think you'll really love this one because it's a uh, similar narrative style that really takes you through uh, this adventure with uh, people who are real but are also very good characters too. So I highly recommend The History of the Future. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind, and this is week 108 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And I have a live stream announcement. We're going to live stream the arrival, hopefully, of my new Mega SG console from Analog at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday afternoon, because that is when it is showing up here. I was hoping to get mine that I pre-ordered a little bit early to do a review. They did that with the Super NT with me, their Super Nintendo console, but unfortunately they didn't have one for me this time. So I'm getting mine a lot later than the rest of the YouTube reviewer community. And as a result, I'm not going to have much of an opportunity to get a lot of traffic on a review. Uh, So we're going to do what I did with the Mister, which is kind of open it up and hook it up and have a, a fun time experiencing this awesome a Sega replica console from scratch. We'll have a Sega CD on hand as well to test that out. And anything else you want to see, let me know down in the comments below, and we'll take a look at that uh, when we do the live stream. I had uh, Comcast come by and fix my internet connection a few weeks ago. I talked about that a few weeks back, and it's been working very well. We've done two live streams that have not had any problems, knock on wood, uh, so hopefully that stays the same. Uh, what I will do is record locally, and if you miss the stream, uh, we will upload it as part of my 
uh, package of videos this week. So stay tuned for that. I'm very excited to get my hands on the console. I'm very jealous of everyone who got theirs today. And I'm also potentially going to go down to Florida next week uh, to watch the next Falcon Heavy launch. And of course, I will be bringing my cameras down with me to cover the event. Uh, We haven't covered a space launch here on the channel in about two or three years, so I'm eager to do another one. I'd love to hear what you want to see down in the comments below. What I found really works with these is to give you an idea as to what it's really like to be there hearing and seeing things. So that's my uh, intent here, because you can certainly get much better footage from SpaceX and NASA on their live stream. But I wanted to give you a perspective of a spectator, and that is one of the things I hope to cover Uh, while I am down there. It all depends on whether or not they can hit the uh, April 7th or 8th launch time. So that is what they're looking at right now. And again, I would love to hear your thoughts about some things you'd like for me to go out and find uh, while we're down there at the Kennedy Space Center for the launch. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question comes in in regards to our Pi VPN overview I did a few days ago. Uh, That's a neat little script that you can run on a Raspberry Pi to turn it into an open VPN server. And this viewer was curious if it was really secure. And I think it is very secure because it is based on OpenVPN, which is an open source project that has been around for a while. It actually just went through a successful security audit, uh, which you can find linked to on screen here. And they very quickly patched up some of the minor things that they discovered Uh, as part of that audit. There was a few uh, small vulnerabilities discovered in it. Uh, One of the things that you'll be prompted to do when you're installing PyVPN is to have it automatically update itself because OpenVPN has its own code, but it's also very reliant on OpenSSL, which is a secure socket layer uh, open source project, which is separate from OpenVPN. And when you do have those updates run, those packages will get updated frequently. And it's good to make sure you're always up on your updates because if there is a vulnerability discovered, it usually gets patched very quickly by one of these two projects. But you have to make sure you are patching your computer and your Raspberry Pi in this instance uh, to be able to take advantage of those uh, security patches. So I think that's always the key is keeping yourself up to date. Uh, Now, one of the things you might want to look at is this link on screen here, which offers some additional recommendations for improving security after installation. A big one is securing the root user account on your Raspberry Pi. That was something we didn't do in my video. Uh, They offer some additional suggestions in this article as well. Now, this article is kind of geared towards people running one of these in a virtual machine, but I think you can uh, make the connection to doing the same things on your Raspberry Pi, and these will make things a little more secure, especially if there is a vulnerability that gets discovered. If you have a more secure root user account, uh, you may not have as big of a problem as you otherwise would with an insecure one, so just keep an eye on that. But nothing's perfect, and if you remember from a couple of years ago, there was a really uh, devastating bug in the OpenSSL package called Heartbleed, Uh, and this allowed people to basically peek into the RAM of the server and see uh, unencrypted data as a result of that. And when Heartbleed hit, this also impacted OpenVPN because, again, it is based on OpenSSL for its security. Uh, So there is an article that you can see on screen here from a few years ago about what that meant for OpenVPN users. 
Now, Heartbleed was a number of years ago. This has been corrected. If you go and install Pi VPN today, uh, these vulnerabilities are no longer there. So this is an old issue, but I think an example of why you always want to make sure you're keeping your stuff up to date uh, because this vulnerability in OpenSSL impacted a lot of different things, including OpenVPN. Uh, but as of now, it is a very secure platform, and I think you should feel comfortable and safe using it. And that leads us to this next comment from Sean C. about why it's important to use a VPN when you are on a public unencrypted Wi-Fi. Uh, Sean mentions here that he fires up the open source Wireshark software and is able to see a lot of what's going on in that network because when your Wi-Fi network is not encrypted with a password, everybody can essentially see everybody else's traffic. Your computer ignores it, but Wireshark allows you to just peek in and just see what's going on on the network. And anyone who's connected to that Wi-Fi network with you will be broadcasting their data out to everyone else. So the two things that Sean recommends here is to use a VPN, which will make all the things that you're transmitting over that network look like gibberish. And if you don't have a VPN, then at least make sure that you're connected to secure websites whenever possible. And this reminds me of a video that I did seven years ago now about Wi-Fi security. You can see how big the iPad was back then. And I was demoing a uh, little browser plugin for Firefox that would go on one of these coffee shop networks and allow you to assume the identity of other people. It was really scary when this was uh, brought out to the public because you would basically just get a list of accounts that would show up on your screen. You could click on one and basically log into that person's Yahoo account. And the reason is at the time, back in 2012, uh, you had to specifically ask your favorite services to enable uh, secure connections for you. They were not the default like many are now today. So if you were in that coffee shop and you hadn't configured Facebook, for example, to work securely, uh, you would actually be able to get taken over without your knowledge, without even a password, because somebody could pull the cookie uh, right out of the air. Yahoo Mail had that problem. Amazon had that problem. Uh, it was quite significant, uh, and that really accelerated all of the major providers to making their websites SSL encrypted so that uh, these sorts of things wouldn't happen. Because over a secure connection, even if you're on public Wi-Fi, uh, those cookies are encrypted and unreadable uh, anywhere except your own computer. Uh, but again, this was a big problem. And it's actually a problem that still continues, as, as Sean kind of alludes to here, because uh, if you are using uh, maybe a self-hosted WordPress site, for example, and you don't have a secure uh, certificate on it, uh, it's possible that people could still spoof your uh, cookie and take over your WordPress site in that coffee shop. So it's things to think about here. You probably want to uh, get yourself encrypted a bit. Uh, so make sure, first of all, that if you are connecting to websites, you have the HTTPS uh, going there before the URL. That will ensure you're on a secure connection. Now, there are ways that people can uh, do man-in-the-middle attacks and other things to uh, take over these connections as well. So again, the VPN is still the safest way to go, but in most cases, this is a safer way to do it if the VPN is not an option for you. Now, for things that you host yourself, like a WordPress site or something like that, uh, go over to Let's Encrypt. It makes it very, very easy to make your website a secure website. And this would be very helpful, again, if you have a WordPress blog or something you're self-hosting that is having you log in, but logging in through an insecure uh, HTTP connection. This is a free way to get that security certificate. They're 
Uh, security is recognized by most of the major browsers, so you will get that little uh, padlock icon without any warnings or anything like that. I've used it on a few of my sites already. In fact, it integrates with my uh, web host's control panel, so it was a two-click operation to get secure. So I would check out Let's Encrypt, again, especially if you are self-hosting something and want to make sure people don't uh, uh, log in with you by sniffing the traffic around you. Now, this next question comes in in regards to Google and the U.S. education market. Uh, Ashbourne here is wondering, how is it possible that uh, Windows is not succeeding in knocking out Google with U.S. education institutions? If anything, Google's market share continues to increase, even though Microsoft is essentially giving away their operating system uh, to OEMs on budget laptops. And the reason, I think, is that we're seeing a a huge amount of convenience that's added with the Google offering. So if you are an educational institution, like a K-12 school, for example, you get Google for your institution for free. That is the full G Suite with Docs and Gmail assigned to your own domain, unlimited users. Basically, they give you everything that they charge a business for, for nothing. And that, of course, is a very enticing offer. Uh, Google, I think, is a lot easier to manage in the IT department versus Microsoft. There's no active directory. You can uh, basically assign users to the things that they can get access to, and it's a very familiar interface for people that have been using Google products over the years. And that, of course, was very enticing to educational institutions that were struggling to host their email servers, for example. I know in my local school district here, we had a self-hosted exchange server that was constantly uh, down or getting hit with stuff. All the spam that was coming in over email was weighing it down. It was taking a lot of staff time to deal with it. Uh, For no cost, we could switch over to Google and have them manage everything, and it saved us really from probably hiring somebody to manage all of that in the district. It's now sitting on Google's servers. The spam protection is so much better, and our staff doesn't have to focus at all on keeping that part of the uh, school operating, and they can focus more on students. Now, the other thing they give out for free uh, is Google Classroom, which is a way of managing uh, the classroom experience for teachers. And it's very popular. And again, it is free. And it's something that Microsoft really doesn't offer to schools. And schools are really finding this to be a very useful tool for not only managing the class, but also communicating with students. And as more and more students are getting Chromebooks issued to them, it's a very natural experience for all of this to get integrated. And as educational institutions integrate the Chromebooks, they are very easy to manage. I do believe Google charges a $30 per computer licensing fee uh, to integrate your Chromebooks into your Google setup there, but that's it. So it's pretty uh, low cost for the district. It's very easy to do. I think a lot easier than it is to manage an Active Directory scenario. And the nice thing about the Chromebooks is that because everything is stored on the Google server, if you happen to lose a Chromebook or it gets damaged, uh, the kid can be back up and running in no time because their account is perfectly synced up. In fact, the kid could use a different computer at home. Uh, whatever they do at home is immediately on the uh, school's Chromebook, so you really don't lose anything ever. And the dog will not be eating anyone's homework because the homework is stored safely over at Google's servers. So altogether, I think the experience from an educator's standpoint is simpler, and it means that there is more time spent with kids than fighting with the technology And that is probably why Google is doing as well as it is, because it focused its product 
on educators and they were not trying to take something that worked in a commercial IT environment and, and kind of shoehorned it into an educational environment. This is a lot easier, a lot better design for education. I think Microsoft still has a lot of catching up to do if they want to be competitive. And we have a winner of our giveaway announced last week of the uh, History of the Future book by Blake Harris on virtual reality. And that winner is Howie Mansfield. Howie, I will be emailing you to get your address and we'll get that book out to you a little bit later this week. I want to thank everyone who entered and everyone who continues to watch. And if you didn't win, definitely pick up the book because it is a great read if you're into virtual reality. And our pick of the week this week are two aviation-focused channels that have Uh, looked at the 737 MAX issues that came out of those two uh, tragedies uh, in a much better way than I think the media at large has been doing. And it speaks to the power of this platform that you can get expert opinions from people that have a lot of experience with uh, what these uh, big topics are about. And the two are Mentor Pilot, uh, who's a commercial uh, airline pilot. In fact, he is a 737 pilot, and he talks about how he's been trained to deal with runaway stabilizers, which is the issue behind what's going on in the 737 MAX aircraft. Uh, They instituted a new system on that airplane uh, because they had moved the engines uh, further up front on the wing. So when you applied additional thrust to the aircraft, uh, the plane would actually pitch up and could potentially stall in the course of that. So the MCAS system actually adjusts the stabilizer on the back to give the pilot a familiar experience to what they were accustomed to on other 737 models. And Mentor Pilot here talks about how you might disable that. And another channel I found interesting in the course of this discussion is Blanco Lirio. His name is Juan, and he is a first officer, I believe, on a 777 aircraft, but he has experience on the 737s as well. He's been flying since he was 16 years old and was an airplane mechanic before he became a pilot. And he's got a very good perspective on things. And I think it really explains the heart of some of these very technical issues in a way that I think people can really understand. And you'll learn a lot about what it's like to fly an airplane that large as well from him. So I've really been enjoying uh, tuning into his channel as well. This really speaks to the power of the YouTube algorithm because this was one of the channels that popped up as I was researching Uh, the 737 MAX issue, and it's really neat just how this works and how small creators can uh, get a boost when they cover something topical that might be of interest to people that haven't found them before. Uh, So definitely check out those two two channels if you are interested in aviation. And by the way, that will lead you down a whole rabbit hole of amazing content on flying airplanes that are out there from pilots of all different experience levels. I've been really having fun uh, watching a lot of those over the last couple of weeks, and I might share a few more with you as the weeks progress here. Now, this week on the channel, we've got a couple of things. First is that live stream of the Mega SG. Again, I'll uh, upload a replay of that as well a little later in the week. We're also going to take a look at that Codlix Mini PC, the fanless one that I talked about a little bit earlier. Hope to shoot that one a little later today or first thing tomorrow. And I'm also getting in a lower-cost NAS device this week that should provide similar performance to a more expensive Synology or QNAP or WD device, but with a few less bells and whistles. Because a lot of you were asking, why do these NAS devices cost so much? We did do a video on that topic a few weeks ago. Uh, But this is one that I think costs probably about what people would expect for what it has for hardware. And we'll put it through its paces and see how it does. We've looked at some of these TerraMaster NAS devices in the past. I've been kind of unimpressed with them. But this one, they say, uh, handles some Plex hardware transcoding and has had some improvements over 
prior versions. So we'll give them another shot and see if it's a good lower cost alternative to some of those other ones. And I'm also still hoping to get to that Dell monitor that's still sitting in the boxes. Haven't had a chance to do my uh, full review of it, but we'll get to that when we get some time as well. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. We also have other ways that you can support us by watching our other channels, including my extras channel, my audio podcast feed, the Snippets channel, which takes portions of this show and makes them more search-friendly. And then we have my archive of live streams at lon.tv slash live streams. If you want to see what it's like uh, when I do something without any editing, you can see it all there. Uh, If you want to be notified whenever we have something coming up on the channel, you can click the bell to get notified whenever I go live or upload anything. We also have ways to engage with the channel, my very infrequent email list at lon.tv slash email. We have the Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook. We have the Facebook group at lon.tv slash Facebook group. And then we've got the store, lon.tv slash store, where I sell things that I have previously reviewed on the channel and I'm now getting rid of. Uh, We are still in the middle of my house purge, so we're going to be adding more tag sale items up there in addition to uh, prior reviewed stuff. And if you want to get notified every time I update the stock on that store, you can sign up for an alert right here, which will deliver an email to you whenever I make an update. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening to, listening to me uh, blabber on for half an hour or more each week. I do appreciate all the comments and suggestions that you offer throughout the course of the week with all the content that I do. Please keep those coming because it does help me make better content for all of you. And I want to thank you all for your continued support and viewership of the channel. Until next time, this is Lon Seibin. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Tom Albrecht, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.